One of the things that uh, we, most of us often do is we like driving around town, and uh, while I'm not being cut off by someone uh, rudely on the road, uh, it's either I'm getting cut off by somebody or I'm sitting at a traffic light. That seems to be the only time I'm not uh, having experiencing an issue with people. But when I'm sitting at the traffic light or in the line trying to pick up one of my kids from school, one of my favorite little pastimes, because I don't, I don't try to go on my phone while I'm driving. That's not a thing. You shouldn't do that, by the way. No, no texting and driving. I, I wouldn't recommend it. But um, while I'm not texting and not getting cut off and I'm looking at the car in front of me, I like to look at the bumper stickers. Does anyone like, like the bumper sticker thing? Like kinda, it tells you about the person in front of you. But um, there's a bumper sticker that started appearing back in like the early 2000s. Why don't you throw that one up there? Um, but it's... Uh, it's it says coexist, and it was created uh, by a Polish graphic designer back in the early 2000s. It was kind of the time there's uh, like instability in the Middle East. There's the war going on in Afghanistan, um, Iraq. That kind of that was kind of the the ethos in which it, this was created. And so the basic idea behind this is kind of looking at all different religions and saying, hey, just because we're all different religions and we believe differently, we shouldn't be killing each other. We shouldn't be uh, violent against each other. Because in the world, there is a whole history. Not only was that kind of happening at the time, um, you know, there's a lot of political tension and religious tension. But, I mean, the reality is, in our world today, that there has been much violence that have been done in the name of religion. Uh, even people in the name of Christianity have done horrible, horrible things. And so what this bumper sticker really does, it kind of gets at this a sad truth that many people have used religion as an excuse for violence including those who have claimed to be Christians. And um, as you speak with people, and as I've talked to people about faith uh, online, but mostly in person, one of the common criticisms that I've heard or that we've heard about the church, and actually Barna Research has shown, is that uh, the church or church, some, certain churches are known to be or have at times been intolerant. Have you ever heard this idea of like the, the church is not tolerant of other people or other religions kind of the idea is that it's offensive to suggest that there's only one way to believe. It's, it's, it's kind of offensive uh, to believe that your religion might be superior to another religion um, and that all, really all religions are equally true or as we might be seeing more and more today, it's more like all religions are equally false. Um, Yuval Harari wrote a book called Sapiens which, in which he kind of really, I mean it's a really popular book, intelligent guy. But um, he talks about the myths of religion. So uh, his, his perspective is that these, religion is helpful to some degree to creating community, but it's all just based on lies. So it's okay because it helps somewhat, but it's all, all equally false. So I don't know if you've seen that or experienced. Has anyone experienced or seen that, like, interacted with that, that kind of ideology? Yeah, so it's, it's very common. Um, so it wouldn't be surprised. In fact, you might be here. You might, that might be like, yeah, I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Actually, in fact, I do believe that. So here's a, here's a couple thoughts to consider. You know, in reality, there's really no one who believes that all belief systems or all religions are equally valid. So take the Aztecs that would chop people's heads off and, like, you know, pull their heart, like Indiana Jones, right? You're pulling someone's heart out and you're screaming. And, like, religions that kind of tend in that direction, you probably don't think that's a valid way of doing religion, your faith. Like, the head chopping thing is probably not something we'd want to tolerate. So we don't, by the way, we don't tolerate head chopping off at Conchock and Vineyard, just in case you're wondering. It's not part of what we do. We don't chop people's heads off. So just, just <laughs> so you're, you're, uh, you're in good, good 
company here. But the point being is that there is a certain line. Everybody has a certain line, right? Everyone has a, a, an idea of what's right and what's wrong. And another version of this idea is that, so each religion, okay, so each religion maybe has some validity or whatnot, but everyone sees the, but there's a belief that says, okay, everyone sees a partial truth. So everyone in each of these different religions or even the religions that aren't represented here because there's hundreds and thousands of religions, if you go into, you know, the remote places of the world, um, that everyone sees, like every religion sees an aspect of God, but no one religion sees the whole, right? So, so you're kind of saying the, the real religion or the real truth is that all religions only see a part. However, you can't really say uh, all religions only see part of the truth unless you yourself are claiming to know the higher truth about all religions, and in fact, if you think if you think about a message or the preach, if you preach tolerance, like 100% tolerant, meaning tolerance is the only way to go. All religions are equally valid, or all belief systems are valid. You're basically saying that you don't tolerate people who don't tolerate. So it's a kind of a self-defeating kind of argument, right? Because you will not tolerate, and you are being intolerant of people who say. You, you don't tolerate certain beliefs. Does that make sense, the logic of it? So in, in one sense, it doesn't uh, really add up logically. And you can't really hold a position uh, without um, having some kind of uh, logical inconsistency there. I love how Tim Keller put it. He said this. He said, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to say that the way to think about all religions is right. So the idea is we're all exclusive in our thinking, just in different ways. We have different ways of thinking. Even the religion of no religion, or atheism, or whatever it is, if you believe that religions are wrong, that's essentially a religious belief. And in fact, when this religious belief has been put into practice throughout history, throughout the 20th century, think about it. What, what has happened to nations that have tried to squash religion and it, that leads to the worst kind of persecution that we've seen basically in the 20th century. You think about Soviet Russia or communist China, the Khmer Rouge. You can think about what happened in Nazi Germany. I mean, there are so many different examples about when you try to suppress uh, religious belief, it causes some of the worst uh, kind of impression that we've seen. Alistair McGrath, he's an Irish theologian, he says this. He says, the greatest intolerance and violence of the century or practiced by those who believe that religion causes intolerance and violence. In fact, this is what's kind of happening in Eritrea right now. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's, there's intense religious persecution happening in Eritrea, and it is just, it is crazy. And people are being killed systematically in the name of religion or anti-religion. And so you can see the fruit. One of the ways if you can see the truth about something is to look at the fruit and the consequences of what that belief system produces. So the, 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 how do they say it? The proof's in the pudding, right? You can see how, how a belief system works itself out in actual life, in a country, or in a family, or in a, in a person. The problem is, whether it's your own religion or your belief in lack of religion, sometimes, and all, or oftentimes, what religious belief does, and it can do, is if we see someone who thinks differently or believes differently, whether it's a religion or just a system of thought, it can set up in our hearts a feeling of superiority, as if this group is better, or us versus them mentality, where that, that in our hearts we say, we believe what's right, so therefore the other people are wrong, and so we can then 
do whatever we want. So that, that's the thing that leads to persecution and violence and, and on, a, on a macro scale or even on a micro scale as well. So it seems like we're kind of stuck. Like, so what do we do? We have all these different belief systems and we're kind of stuck about where we are. However, the good news is there's, there's actual, when you put your faith in Jesus, the fruit of actually doing it the way Jesus said, which would be the true, pure sense of Christianity, not saying that you're Christian, but actually doing the things that Jesus did leads to a worldwide revolution of love that will bring transformation to the world, to bring restoration. It works. And we'll get into a little bit, a little bit more. But um, So today, what we want to talk about, the, the message title for today is called The Tension of Intolerance. So I want to take another brief moment here um, and let's just pray. I want to pray for what's happening. The reason, there's a... Um, there's an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. I want to highly recommend it. What they do is they care for the practical needs of believers who are being persecuted and killed for their faith all throughout the world. And so I've been praying uh, for the believers in Eritrea, and I, and, and I would just invite you to pray with me briefly. Could we just do that? Just to, and I mean, this is happening. There's many more countries, but this is just one that's been highlighted this week. But... Um, I encourage you to, even as a practice, a spiritual practice, to kind of be aware of, of the persecution that's happening, even as we talk about this context for our sermon series. So let's pray. So Lord, we do pray for your mercy, for your grace, for your kingdom to come into the, into the violence, uh, into the oppression that's happening in this dear country, this airy tree that many of us I've never visited, or I don't know if any of us have, or maybe even don't have any relationships, but you do. And you love the people there. And God, so we pray for an end to the violence, for your people to stay strong in the midst of persecution, and for your love to rule, your kingdom to reign, the goodness of what Jesus came to offer being played out in real time, in real life, would happen. So Lord, now we also do pray that you would shape our hearts and Holy Spirit would you open the eyes of our hearts to ha- help us hear, help every heart and person here hear the thing that you want to say, that you would want to say to them in this day and in this time. And um, I ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so our sermon series, we're talking about the mystery of, of Revelation. And uh, the book of Revelation, in fact, is, so, is full of mystery. It is very difficult for many people to understand, but it doesn't really have to be. What happens, it doesn't have to be because when we place it in its original context in the history of where it was, and we look at it from the way that the people who were reading the letter that it was written, it's a prophetic apocalyptic letter, <clears throat> which is about, re- apocalyptic means rev- revelation, in the book of Revelation. Oh, by the way, it's revelation, not revelations. The, just a little side note, a lot of people call it revelations. It's the revelation, that's, <clears throat> that's uh, what it is. But anyway, revelation is the apocalypse, which means the unveiling, the kind of the pulling back of what was mis- mysterious and being made known. And so what Jesus is doing in this letter is he's pulling back the veil to make known what he wants to teach the church. <clears throat> so we just talked about chapter one a couple weeks ago, which was an introduction to what was happening in the book of Revelation. And what Jesus is about to do through this vision or this experience this, this person John had, and it could be the Apostle John, but it could not be. So there's really debate. So whether it's the Apostle John or another John, or John who knew John and was talking to that John, 
it doesn't matter. The fact is that God revealed himself to, the, to the man, this man, John, and Jesus is speaking to him. And so there's this letter that was going to go to seven different churches, and seven, remember, is symbolic. So Revelation is a symbolic book. There's a lot of symbolism. And sim- seven is the number of completion. So he's writing to these seven churches, but in fact, these seven churches represent the completion of the church, the, the universal church for all time, not just that, then at that point, where he was saying something specific to them at that time, but in fact, the message was applicable to all the churches at all time. And so each of these seven churches that we'll talk about, and we're going to talk about the first one today, is like an archetype. It's a type of a church that represents a kind of church that kind of faded into some kind of um, existence that Jesus wants to speak into. So what he does is, there's there, every warning, every... Um, Every message that he has contains a warning, it contains an encouragement, and it contains a promise. And so as Jesus speaks to each of these churches, he speaks to that very church, but also to us today. So it's exciting to learn because we have, it's very, just as relevant today as it was then. All right, so let's take a look. If you want to follow on your Bibles, uh, it's easy to find the book of Revelation. Just turn to the very back, and you'll open up to the, you know, Revelation 20-something probably, and then go to chapter 2. Um, you can also follow along here. So it starts off, let's take a look at Revelation 2, just that first little piece there. He starts off, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Okay, so he's writing to this church in Ephesus. Now, we're going to stop there because, remember, let's put it in its context. So let's talk about Ephesus. Have you familiar, have, has anyone heard of the book of Ephesians? Okay, so anybody, Nobody? Ephesians. Okay, good. All right. So a little bit of like interaction is good. So just raise your hand if you know. If not, that's okay. You don't have to yell anything out. That's okay. So Ephesus. So Ephesus was an incredible city. It was one of the most powerful, besides Rome itself, it was probably one of the most powerful and influential uh, commercial and spiritual centers of the ancient world in Rome. So it, there's this massive seaport, and so there was commercial traffic coming in all the time. It was it was affluent. It was influential spiritually, um, and it was on the Mediterranean Mediterranean coast there. So it was really the Roman imperial and commercial power of the day. It was a powerhouse. It had this huge, giant amphitheater. So like with with the steps, and you can actually see it today. It's uh, Ephesus. By the way, these seven churches are in modern-day Turkey. So that's in that part of the world. It's kind of, it was Asia Minor back then, but now is modern-day Turkey. So it's kind of in that region there uh, where uh, John is speaking or Jesus is speaking into. However, the crown jewel of Ephesus was something called the Temple of Artemis. It, it was, it was this beautiful garden. It, the whole city was basically revolved around this spiritual epicenter, and they worshipped uh, worship the goddess Artemis. And, and so everything that, that drove the city and drove the town in a spiritual kind of way was centered around this one place. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, and it was a, this was a very powerful pagan stronghold. And it was in this place that the Apostle Paul, he came in preaching and he was doing these miraculous things. And there was such an amazing uh, transformation of what God did. So people were being healed. Demons were coming out of people. Uh, to, actually, one, one, one demon came out of a, a, a girl and it just caused a riot in the city. So anyway, all these people were bringing their books and they were burning their scrolls that were worshiping these pagan gods and demon gods. Uh, and so it was incredible, miracle-filled ministry that you can read about more in Acts 19. But that gives us a little context of what's happening. But it was in this like 
pagan empire that the church, the, one of the strongest and most vibrant churches began to grow. And this is the context to which Jesus is going to be speaking. Okay, so that's the context. So let's take a look. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so just a reminder from last week, the seven stars, does anyone remember what they were? Jesus actually said it. They were the angels. So they were the angels of the churches and the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands were the churches themselves. Okay, so that's what those represent. You can see that Jesus says that in uh, chapter 1. So you, just, you can refer back to that. But just to kind of give you a little review. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. All right, so the church is doing a good job. Jesus is like, hey, you guys are doing a pretty good job at some things. You've, you've persevered. You, you've worked hard at, uh, at uh, the kingdom ministry things. You've, when things have gotten hard, you haven't given up. You've given up. You know, oftentimes we, if we encounter something difficult, we may feel not called to that anymore. But they, they didn't feel that. They were continued to persevere in the midst of very challenging circumstances. Some of them may have been killed. Their family members may have been killed. They may have been shamed publicly, but they, they stood on the firm truth of what Jesus had taught them. And really, the, one of the main threats to the young churches was persecution. That could cause the, these young churches to really crumble. And so pagan persecution getting caught up um, too, and false teaching was the other threat. So Jesus, basically what he's commending them for is commending them for not tolerating certain kinds of teaching and not tolerating certain kinds of teachers who are promoting these false doctrines. So basically what Jesus is saying here, is, listen, everything is not equally valid. There are false ways of teaching and, and representing me, or representing Jesus, that are inaccurate, and he gets commended for being intolerant, or they do, being intolerant of these kind of false-appointed uh, apostles who would try to, you know, glean the hospitality of the local house churches, they're meeting in houses, you know, eat their food, enjoy, and want, to, want to, like an audience for their teaching. But they were saying, saying things that were harmful spiritually. And so Jesus is, is commending them for not promoting and actually um, welcoming them for, for that reason. So the question is, how do we discern today? How do we discern what's true and not? Well, one of the ways we do, as we see here, is what Jesus says. We, if we filter everything that we hear according to what Jesus says, or an expanded version of that is the Word of God, meaning the Bible itself is the Word of God. In John 1, it says Jesus was the Word. And so the, the Scripture of itself, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, everything in the New Testament points back to Jesus. And so if we look at everything in Scripture through what Jesus did and Jesus said, we can have an accurate understanding, discern whether something is true or not. What, did, what is one of the things Jesus said about himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is our anchor for truth. So if we interpret anything that happens in the world through the lens of Jesus, we can accurately interpret Scripture and discern what's right and what's wrong. And, and so I'd encourage you to know, your, know the Word, know the Bible for yourself. And so we want to equip you. What we're trying to do, we do on Sundays is equip you with the tools to help you understand God's Word and help you know Jesus 
yourself. And that's what we do even in small groups as well, is we, we go a little bit more in depth together to process what we're learning and uh, see what God has to say for us specifically. And a little note, next year, or 2024, that sounds like a whole year from now. And like, it's kind of like on January 31st where you say, see you next year. So in the new year, in January, we're going to be starting a, a biblical training uh, if you want to go more in depth and understand the scriptures. So talk about conduct, all those different things. Um, and there's a partnership we're doing with the seminary now, the Vineyards Piling. So I, I would like to pilot a course. So just a little note, just want to plant that seed there. But anyway, as we understand God's word, here's what happens. If we look at God's word and we look at what's the fruit, is there a fruit if someone puts into practice what Jesus says about people and how we tolerate or in being intolerant, tolerant, what will happen? Okay, so let's look at a few things that Jesus says. So, for example, Jesus tells his disciples that they're the light of the world. So that means if we're doing, if we're we're behaving as followers of Jesus in a certain way, the people of other religions and other beliefs or lack thereof will see something of value in what followers of Jesus will be doing. And so there's an actual natural overlap. There's like, hey, let's look for common ground between what people see as, as, as valuable. That's one thing. Followers of Jesus believe that all people are created equal and in the image of God. That in and of itself, no matter what a person believes, no matter what a person says, no matter what country they're from, no matter what they look like, every single human being is a reflection of God's image. So that basic theological belief is actually the basis for human rights. And in fact, uh, guys like uh, Yuval Harari will argue, even as a, from a secular perspective, will admit, it, will admit that Christianity itself and the theology that's in the scripture provides the basis for human rights that we see in the world today. Why would there be human rights unless they were given as a, from a creator uh, endowed to the a value of a human being. Otherwise, if you believe in anything you want, there are no, actually, there is no basis for human rights without God or with a, with a general belief system. So uh, understanding what Jesus teaches about the nature of a human being uh, helps us love people no matter what. And then, of course, Jesus himself, he died for sinners, right? He died for people who had rejected him, who were his enemies, and then taught his disciples to love their enemies. And we as believers and as Jesus taught and as seen throughout the scripture is that we are all sinners, that all of us have sinned, all of us have gone wrong, all of us have done uh, rebelled against God and not one of us, there is not one person who is superior morally to another person. We're not saved by the good things that we do, we're saved by the good thing that God has done for us by the good thing that Jesus has done and when we embrace and believe in what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and we're filled with his spirit, then God's spirit comes and makes us good like him. It doesn't, we don't try to prove our goodness to God because none of us are good before God. God has been good and he, through the person of Jesus, makes us good in our relationship with him. And that works its way out in our practical everyday lives. And loving our enemies is one of the key, is one of the most essential aspects of understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So in fact, of all belief systems, what Jesus taught is, in some ways, you could say the most inclusive of all belief systems there are. In fact, followers of Jesus will regularly, when put into practice, 
will bring about the most peace and will, is really God's plan for restoration in the world today. And this is a reason for hope that those who live according to, his, to the teachings of Jesus, well, in fact, when they put into practice what he says, will be the most loving and receptive to those who believe differently than others. So it's set up to be just the way God intended. So now it's one thing to know this truth and to have this idea of what's true but then to actually put it into practice is a separate thing. You can say you believe something, but if you don't actually do it, in fact, what shows what you believe the most is what you actually do. Your behavior reflects your beliefs. So if you think you know something, but you behave differently, you really don't believe that. You have to then re-examine what you believe. Let's look at Revelation 2, 4 to 6. These are some of the warnings that Jesus uh, gives the church in Ephesus. He says, yet I hold this against you, verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So I like this kind of method. Jesus gave him the sandwich method. Here's some good stuff. Here's the little bad stuff, the Oreo stuffing in the middle. And here's a little encouragement at the end, okay? So I like how he does that, and he ends on a positive note. So he doesn't, he, he likes that they don't tolerate or these kind of wicked or these hate, these practices, Nicolaitans. Scholars don't really know what they are, who they are, what they did. However, basic, the basic point being is that there are certain practices that Jesus hates, and he, he doesn't want them to do those things. Like the practice, for example, what does Jesus hate? Does Jesus, it's not common to think about Jesus hating things, but Jesus actually hate, hates unlock, a lack of love that's in people. When people are hurt and when people are destroyed, right? He hates sin because of the impact that he has. It's good to hate that which is evil because it undoes God's good will and intention in his kingdom uh, for people's, people's lives. And so he's saying, that's a good thing. That's a good thing here. However, the Ephesians had left their first love. And so in the original translation is, you, you've fallen away from your first love. And what was love in the early church? In that time, what love looked like, love was not just a romantic feeling. Love was something that you did. Love was something that was expressed. Particularly, it was love expressed to the poor, to the needy in their own community, and to those who believed differently than they did. This is what, rev what was the most striking, one of the most incredible things about the early church that made them different from every other um, belief system than every other ethnic group. No ethnic group did this. Is they, they loved like babies that were being left out to die or they loved those who were lonely. They brought people who didn't have families into their community and their love was revolutionary. And it was the love of the early Christians and their practical concern for the poor and for the needy and those who were vulnerable that created a picture of an otherworldly kingdom that people had never seen before in history. And it was in this incredibly loving, accepting, inclusive community driven by the love of Jesus, in not tolerating hatred and false beliefs that gave birth to the church. And this is a kind of love that was born by the power of the Holy Spirit only made possible. This is the mark of the church. This is the love. This is the love that he's talking about. And so when Jesus talks about love, you left your first love, 
He's talking about their love for him, but how is our love for God expressed? Primarily, it's expressed in our love for people. Remember, the two greatest commands are this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second greatest command, just like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so any expression of a Christian faith or any expression of faith that lacks love, in fact, Jesus would hate that. And that's what people reject when they look at Jesus or Christianity. They're not rejecting the thing that Jesus came to do. They're rejecting a false version of it that presents a facade of love, but in fact is unloving. So in fact, if we were to get back to the root of what Jesus taught in the early church, the, more, the radical thing, the root of what Jesus loves, is he loves love. He loves the expression of his kingdom being expressed in the practical needs of those around him. And, and he's saying to this group, listen, you kind of got away from that. So maybe they got so caught up under a sense of persecution, under a sense of shame, under maybe they got wrapped up in their own lives in some degree, they got busy with you know, fighting for what's true, that they got too busy for the Jesus stuff. They, 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 they started to wane in their love. In other scriptures, it talks about their love growing cold. And so their love, they were committed to truth, but they had lost the most important thing, which was love. And so what this church in Ephesus represents is a church that is really committed to truth. Like they won't tolerate all the false beliefs out there on YouTube and Facebook and different books and written. However, they've kind of missed the whole point that the point of the truth and holding to the truth is to hold to the love that they have for God and for people. It's a type of church, and I don't know if you can see that today. There's churches that are highly committed to what's true and what's right and the right thing to do. And this is not right and that's not right. However, there's, there's a lack of expression of actual love happening to the people around them, whether it's their own family, the vulnerable, the needy, the children, as we talked about today, like Teresa had talked about. They had lost their first love. And Jesus said, the consequence, he says, uh, did I read that part? Yeah, I, th I think we did. He says, the con it's consequences that the lampstand will be removed. Yeah, verse, uh, verse five. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound good. If Jesus comes, what is the lampstand? The lampstand is the church itself. And where did the lampstand sit? If you look at chapter one, Jesus was walking among them. So on one level, it's being removed from the presence of Jesus. And so as, we, as our love drains out of our lives, or in fact, we're walking further and further away from the presence of God. And number two, the lampstand where it was, was the physical location in Ephesus. It would be removed. And guess what? Guess how many churches there are in, in Ephesus now? Zero. There is only, and if it is, nobody knows. They're, they're, they're in hiding. There is zero church representing in Ephesus, which is the sad truth. The good news is that God used the church of Ephesus to spin off all sorts of incredible movements of God, disciple-making movements all over the ancient, ancient world. And so beware of being the kind of community, the kind of person or the kind of people that hold to the truth but have actually lost your first love. And so this is a challenge. So the, I want to ask you, 
perhaps you have a commitment, and, and this is an actual warning to people, us today. Have you had a commitment to the truth and you know what's right and wrong and you can discern in the world what's right and wrong today and not tolerate certain false beliefs, which is good. But perhaps in the midst of it, there's maybe been a cynicism or a busyness or something in your heart that is turned away from loving people the way that Jesus loved. And this is a call. This is a true call to repent, to think differently, to align our lives again with our first love and put love first and foremost just as Jesus did. And maybe there's a conviction that's coming to you as we read, as we read the words of, of, of this. And this is a message, we have to understand, this is not a message to unbelievers. This is a message first and foremost to the church, to people who proclaim faith in Jesus. And ultimately, we should not tolerate a kind of faith. And it, if we want to start with not tolerating, it's not about not tolerating people out there. It's not about so much about not tolerating the world so much. Where we need to start by being intolerant is not tolerating the lack of love that is in our hearts. I spoke with someone very precious to me uh, yesterday who said, who said, said to me, they said, I feel like there's a, there's a hatred in my heart toward my friends because of what they've done. And I had an opportunity to pray with that person. And, and help them understand God's forgiveness and put in perspective God's love for us as sinners so that we can then forgive those who have hurt and hurt, hurt us re- even repeatedly. And so the, the, the call here, my friends, is not to be intolerant of the world and of people. The, the real call is to be intolerant of the thing. Let's start, why don't we start there, is look inside our own hearts and see if there's any lack of forgiveness, any, any bitterness, and anything, any root that has been expressed in a way that's unhealthy, that's not according to the pattern of Jesus. That's where God would want us to start. And that's what Jesus is calling these people to repent of those things, to turn back to the original love, which, which is what Jesus has done for us. And we can do that. So just a brief note, back to that idea. I talked about we're having this event called Transformation Weekend. What Transformation Weekend does essentially is it helps us identify those areas of our life where we may have lacked love in our relationship with God or in our relationship with people. It helps us identify those things and turn back to him. So I'd encourage you. So let me finish with this final picture. And actually, we're going to skip to the very end of the book of Revelation because um, he talks about the image of what's to come when God's kingdom has reached its fulfillment. Um, so Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. If you want to flip over there in your Bible, we'll, we'll pull up. Thank you for pulling that up. Okay, so this is what we see. Here's the picture. And by the way, um, context, why does Jesus use this picture? Uh, and why does he talk about in the previous verse this idea of this, um, this tree of life? So here's another reference of this tree. So here's the image that's used once when he's talking to Ephesus. Now at the end, there's this, there was this tree in the middle of Ephesus, in, um, the, the Garden of Artemis. And criminals would come and gather, and it was like a place of safety. So any unrepentant criminals could be safe around this tree. I don't know why they set it up, but it was like a, uh, a place where criminals could not be caught. So anyway, so he's using this language, and then he brings it back. But it says here, here's the picture, Revelation 22, 1 to 2. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb 
in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were the healing for the nations. The paradise of God and those who stand before are not those who trust in their own deeds, trust in their own goodness, trust in their own way of doing life, the people who stand before the tree of life and drink of the fountain of, of heaven and in the paradise of God are those who have, in fact, what Jesus calls repented, which means to simply turn, to change the way you think, to turn towards God away, to his lo- away from our own way of doing things and to his, to his love. And that's the invitation for everyone here today. It's an invitation, again, to get back to our first love. And so, in fact, God might be calling you today to return to your first love. Maybe you've grown apart. Maybe you've been separate from, from community, from, from real genuine relationship. You've, you've grown, uh, you know, absorbed in your own life and ha- have, have not been giving yourself away as God has called. And I believe that God is calling us back to our first love again. And so what we want to do is give people an opportunity to, to rest and listen to how the Holy Spirit might be leading us. And so the Holy Spirit can help apply what he's saying to each of our lives, that we're called to bear the fruit. And as we do, we can eat that fruit. Not only, this isn't just a future promise that someday we will eat the fruit of the kingdom in the paradise of God, but we can now, here now, we can taste the fruit of God's kingdom here on this earth, which means restoration of your own heart, restoration of your relationships, the peace, the fruit of the spirit that he's avail- is made available because of what Jesus did, has done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's here and he wants to do that today, not only in eternity, but for, for here, for you, for me, and for every nation. And we're gonna take communion to celebrate that in just a minute. But let's, let's do this. Let's take a moment and let's just give the Holy Spirit space to bring conviction, to bring encouragement, to do whatever he wants to do in this moment. So Holy Spirit, again, I ask that you would give us ears to hear what you are doing in each of our lives. I pray that you would identify maybe uh, a lack of love that each of us has maybe bought into through what we've believed or what we've done, maybe drifted away so that we can be restored again, so that we can live into the fullness of the love that you have for each of us. Would you show us the things that you don't tolerate, that you don't want to tolerate in us for our well-being and your love out of your love for us? So what I'm do, I'm just gonna take a moment of silence and allow God to speak.